And once again, good morning. Yes, if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 20 as we continue our way through this book. Uh, last week, we, we kind of started a three-part series. I didn't really realize it was going to be a three-part series when I started it, but you know how I go. Start studying these things, and all of a sudden it turns into a two- or three-part series. But uh, we began a study in 2 Samuel 20, which we're uh, calling Rebellion, Revenge, and Reason. Now, we built this message around two main points. Very simply, the passage explained and the principles extracted. And uh, last week, we finished explaining the passage. So if you weren't here, you can go online and listen to it for free. Or if you have our app downloaded, very easy to access studies uh, from the app on your smartphone. But uh, we uh, finished last week looking or uh, explaining the passage, and then we started to extract the principles. Only got the first one. Uh, there are three principles embodied in three persons. And uh, I'm calling them the rebellion of Sheba, the revenge of Joab, and the reason of a wise woman. Just quickly to review, first of all, the rebellion of Sheba, verse 1. And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Now, we know definitively that Sheba was a rebel because verse 1 tells us he was a rebel. Why was he a rebel? We looked at this last week. Well, very simply, he was a rebel because he wasn't content to submit his life to God or to God's king, which in his case was King David. He wanted power and success for himself and listen, all the material things that went along with it. And so he led a rebellion against David and, of course, ultimately against God, who put David on the throne so that he could rule over the northern tribes of Israel as king. You know, Sheba was like so many today who are fighting with God by refusing to submit to his king, Jesus Christ. They are rebels who think that happiness and fulfillment in life become a reality if they can just have enough money, buy enough things, acquire enough power, enjoy enough pleasure, or attain enough success in life, then I'm going to be happy. Then I will find fulfillment. But as we said last week, guys, the Bible says very clearly that everyone born into this world is born with a God-shaped void in their heart. They don't know that. They just know they're empty. But they don't know how to fill it. And so they're running all over the place trying to find fulfillment and happiness and all kinds of things. Most of those things are sinful, which is why they're rebels. But the Bible says that God has purposely designed people with a God-shaped void so that they come looking for him, a void that can only be filled by God himself and the person of Jesus Christ. And once Jesus Christ is invited to live in our hearts, he fills that void, he gives us perfect peace, he gives us purpose in life, I mean, we're no longer grasping and striving for all the things the world is holding up and say, look, this will make you happy. Just, you know, go over here and do this or buy that or whatever it might be. No, we have Jesus. We're satisfied. Remember, he's the good shepherd who makes us to lie down in what? Green pastures. A sheep will only lie down in green pastures if they're what? Satisfied. We lie down. We're not pursuing the things of this. We're satisfied in him, right? So... We looked at that first point in detail last week. You can go online and listen to it. All right, guys, that brings us to the next principle that we can glean from the passage. A principle embodied in the person of Joab. 
and I'm calling it the revenge of Joab. Verse 8, when they were at the large stone which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Well, let me just give you the background, okay? David wanted his new general Amasa to gather the troops within three days and meet him in Jerusalem to pursue uh, Sheba, who had gone up to the north. Amasa, for whatever reason, didn't show up at the appointed time. David was concerned that we need to move quick on this. If this guy has time to gather an army, it could be worse than Absalom's rebellion. So when Amasa didn't show up in the three days allotted, David turned to Abishai, one of his commanding officers, and said, look, you take some of the top guys and you pursue Sheba. Well, Abishai took his brother Joab, and so they're going north, and they get to Gibeon, and here coming south with his guys is Amasa. So they meet up, all right? That's the background. Now, verse 8 again. Now, Joab was dressed in battle armor, and on it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath uh, at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, now here's the thing, okay? Actually, Joab and Amasa, as we said, were cousins. Uh, but they didn't really care much for each other. And uh, when Joab saw Amasa coming, somehow he was able to um, finagle his sword so that when he bowed down to Amasa as he was coming toward him, the sword fell out on the ground. That was purposely done, I believe, so that when Amasa, who was a little bit concerned about Joab because he had a reputation for violence, uh, when Amasa saw that his sword fell on the ground, he was like, well, okay, the sword's on the ground, you know. Uh, he can't hurt me with it. So he was then disarmed and came toward Joab. And Joab says, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand uh, and went to kiss him. That's how they did it. Grab you guy by the beard. You kiss him on the cheek as a greeting, especially if he's family. Verse 10, But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. In other words, this was the dagger that he had in his belt. The sword that was on his hip and its sheath fell out, but he had this dagger. Is the idea. And so as he pulls Amasa close to him, he strikes him in the stomach with his dagger, and his entrails poured out in the ground, and uh, he did not strike him again, thus he died. Amasa died. Very gruesome uh, scene. But as we saw in chapter 19, verse 13, the reason Joab hated Amasa so much was because David had appointed Amasa to be his new general over the armies of Israel in place of Joab. Now, Amasa had been... Absalom's general in the rebellion. But after the rebellion was put down, David, as king, knew that he needed to bring the nation back together quickly. If he didn't work hard immediately to bind up the wounds of the nation and uh, bring the division back where there was, you know, where there was unity again, uh, this division might have gone on indefinitely. So because Amasa was Absalom's general, David makes him his general now, which, of course, allowed all the people that were loyal to Amasa to say, well, David has taken our general, made, his, made him his general. Hey, I feel connected to David again. Very smart. David was a good politician, all right? But also he took command away from Joab and gave it to Amasa because, if you remember, David had asked Joab and the armies of Israel, look, if you can take Absalom alive, will you please do it for my sake? You know, he's my son. I don't want to see him killed. I know he's fighting against us, but if you can take him alive, will you do that for me? But Joab didn't think that was such a good idea. Joab figured that, look, this guy, you know, we capture him, he may rebel again someday. So Joab took it upon himself to kill Absalom, even though he could have easily captured him. He's just hanging around, okay? And so he, he kills him. And David, of course, didn't take kindly to that. 
But uh, as we saw last week, guys, this was not the first time Joab killed a rival. He also killed another man named Abner. As we studied earlier in 2 Samuel, Abner had been King Saul's general. King Saul's general. And uh, when Saul was killed in battle, Abner took his son, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and set him up as king in his father's place. Even though Abner knew full well God had said David was going to rule after Saul. Abner knew that. But you see, if David was king, Abner couldn't be a big shot because obviously, you know, he would, he'd be nothing. Okay, but now if he's backing Ishbosheth to be the new king of Israel, well, Abner could be the power behind the throne because Ishbosheth was a weak leader. And Abner knew that. So he set him up kind of as a vassal king. Abner was the power behind the throne. Well, eventually, though, Ishbosheth and Abner had a falling out, as you remember as we studied this. So Abner defects to David's side. And David immediately makes him a general in his army, equal with Joab. Now, you have to understand these guys back then, okay? They were pretty barbaric guys, and honor was everything. And Joab's thinking he's furious, no doubt. He's thinking to himself, this is a fine, how do you do? I mean, here, I've been loyal to David all my life, you know, protecting him. Abner and the armies of Saul pursued David through the wilderness for 10 years trying to kill him to remove him as a threat to Saul's reign. And now, what does David do? He goes and rewards the guy by making him a general. And uh, Joab did not take kindly to that. He saw uh, Abner as an enemy. He saw him as a rival. And um, he did not like rivals uh, taking power and glory away from him. But the real reason, I think, number one reason Joab hated Abner was because Abner had killed Joab's younger brother Asahel in battle. And you remember we studied this. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 2, uh, verses 17 to 23. But the forces of Abner and Joab got into a skirmish. They began to fight each other. And Joab's guys began to have the victory. So Abner withdraws. He's trying to retreat. But Asahel was about maybe 17 or 18 at this time. Young guy, very fast. Okay, they say he was as fast as a gazelle. Okay, he was a pretty quick kid. Uh, Abner was probably around, I don't know, maybe uh, uh, 33, 4. He was a seasoned warrior by this time, but he's trying to get away. He doesn't want to let this thing go any further. And so, but Asahel's on his heels, and he's coming up fast. And Abner looks behind him and sees him and says, look, kid, break it off. You know, I don't want to have to hurt you. How am I going to face your brother? All right, so if you just break it off now, we'll just, you know, the, the chase, we'll, we'll leave it as it is. But if you continue this, I'm going to have to kill you. Well, Asahel thought, if I can kill the general, I'm going to really make a name for it myself. So he continues to pursue Abner, and Abner turns around and kills the kid. And so Joab, you know, this was an honor-bound society back then. And if somebody killed one of your relatives, you were honor-bound to take them out. And so Joab kept that in his mind and waited for the right time to avenge his brother's death on Abner. And, uh, you know, all of this fueled Joab's hatred and revenge. And so we read in 2 Samuel 3, verse 27, Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach, so uh, that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And then again we read in this chapter this morning, in chapter 20, how that Joab then kills Amasa. So it, Joab was a very cruel uh, guy. He was one of those guys where he hated uh, enemies, rivals. 
And uh, he would get rid of them no matter what he had to do. Revenge was a big thing with him. Anybody who crossed him, anybody who uh, dishonored him, he would uh, do what was ever was necessary to get rid of them, even if it was murder. Now, let me just say this. Many people today would not do physical violence against another who had wronged them, but they wouldn't hesitate or think twice about trying to hurt them in some other way. And I'd say a big way where people hurt others today, young people especially, is through social media. Bullying has become such a problem in this nation that all 50 states, and I just checked on this to make sure I had the facts right, all 50 states have passed anti-bullying laws. Why? It's become such an epidemic when one young person or several wants to hurt another person and they get on social media and start to, to bully them, say horrible, untrue things about them. Uh, oftentimes, the people will gang up on this one person and many young people have committed suicide because they can't take it. It's become a real problem among young people especially. When it comes to those who are maybe 30 and older, it seems lawsuits are the preferred method of revenge, you know, to try to hurt or destroy somebody financially. I don't have to tell you guys, ours has become a very litigious society uh, where people will sue each other for hardly any reason because they just don't want to work things out. Sometimes it's so minor, but they refuse to work it out. Why? Let's be honest. Revenge feels better than reconciliation. Revenge just feels better, okay? Again, I want to destroy a person. I don't want to work it out. I want to, I want to destroy this person in some way. You know, a couple of weeks ago, and most of you were praying for my cousin, Deb, she was in the hospital having open-heart surgery, so we went there and made sure we got there early and prayed over her, and then I sat with the family in the waiting room while she was undergoing surgery, and you know, they had the TVs on, okay? I never watched daytime television, ever. But they had the TV on, and these uh, courtroom programs came on, I think like three in a row, okay? And, and, and I'm watching these things, and... You know, the people come before the judge, and well, what are you suing this person for? And they would explain what they're suing a person for. Are you serious? Most of it was such ridiculous nonsense, you know? But really is nothing new, because I was just reading a story a couple days ago about uh, Abraham Lincoln. And of course, before he became president, he was uh, an attorney. And one day, a guy comes, true story, a guy comes to him and wants to hire him to sue somebody for $2.50. And Lincoln was like, are you kidding? $2.50? I mean, that's ridiculous. And the guy was adamant. No, I want to hire you to sue this guy for $2.50. And Lincoln said, okay, fine. My fee is $10. <laughs> the guy pays him the 10 bucks. Lincoln takes $2.50 of it, gives it to the guy being sued, who then gives it to the guy suing him. And the author said everyone was happy, including the guy that first brought the lawsuit. <laughs> Which says to me, money was never the issue, obviously. This guy just wanted the satisfaction of suing this guy and winning, even if he won his own money back. Crazy, isn't it? However, obviously, sometimes revenge takes a much more violent form, as we saw maybe a week ago. A young 19-year-old guy walked into a restaurant on the south side of Chicago and shot and killed four guys because he believed they had shot and killed his father the day before. So revenge has taken this kid's life away, he probably will never see the light of day ever again. He'll be probably uh, uh, in prison the rest of his life, 19, all because of revenge. And you know, on and on it goes. In every walk of life, cutting across all socioeconomic lines, people 
want to destroy those who hurt them or who disparage them or even those who disagree with them on some issue that is dear to their heart. Guys, there is an evil spirit of revenge that has taken hold of our culture. People don't want to talk it out. They don't want to work it out. Like Joab, they just want to destroy their enemies. We see this practically every night in the news, that there is a small but vocal and even violent group of people known as the left, the left. These folks hate America. They hate traditional values. They hate God. And most of all, they hate Donald Trump. These people can't be talked to or reasoned with. I've seen people on TV try to do it in the news and stuff. They can't be talked to. They can't be reasoned with because they are committed to the belief that those who disagree with them are evil and therefore must be destroyed or at very least silenced. You know, in a recent radio program, this is about maybe three or four days ago, Rush Limbaugh made an insightful observation about those on the left and the ideology that drives them. He said, and I, I thought it was insightful. I'll read part of it to you. He said, the way the left behaves today in virtually everything that they do, do you realize how close it is to radical Islam? He said, for the kind of Islamists we're talking about, the Sharia Islamists, there is no authority but Islam. To the left, there is no authority but themselves. They respect and recognize no other authority. They don't recognize the authority of elections. They don't recognize the authority of public opinion. They don't recognize the authority of the Constitution, even though those in public office swear allegiance to it. This behavior is very, very close to Sharia Islam, where there is no authority but Islam. It's a core tenet of Islam. The ruler must be obeyed as long as he complies and enforces Sharia law. And if the ruler abandons Sharia law, they assassinate him, like in the case of former Egyptian president Anwar al-Sadat. Now, they don't do that in America, he says, of course. They don't do assassinations here. But if the left's leaders abandon them, you know what happens to them. They're immediately forgotten, destroyed, cast aside, and ruined. In fact, the left believes there is no room for disagreement. Any idea outside their own is considered illegitimate. There is no crossing the aisle. There is no compromise. There is no working together to prove Washington or government uh, works. There is only one way. And I'll add my comment, my way or the highway. That's what they believe. Look, the reason that the left in this country has become so radical is because their opinions have ceased being looked at by them as opinions and have crossed over into, listen, sacred beliefs. In other words, their ideologies become a religion to them. And as we all know, there is no more fervent zeal than religious zeal. The kind of zeal that comes when you believe you're fighting for good over evil, as you pledge allegiance to your God, which in their case is the God of liberalism or progressivism. You know, it's interesting that Limbaugh also says something a few months ago I thought was insightful. He said, if liberalism was a religion, then abortion would be one of its sacraments. Well, it is, and it is. This is why the left is so fervent, guys, in our country and has become so violent and unreasonable. It's because re religious zeal is always rooted in truth. At least everybody who fights for a cause believes they're fighting for the truth. Now, that's not always the case, but they always believe they're fighting for truth, these zealots. Their cause is always rooted in truth, and truth is non-negotiable. And so the battle cry for liberals, as with followers of Islam, is one motto only, convert or die. Now, maybe not literally die in America, but we're going to kill your reputation. We're going to kill your business. We're going to do whatever we have to do to take you out 
because you're evil. Why? Because you disagree with us, and therefore we have to do something about you. We, we're fighting for truth. It's a religious zeal. The good news is, the good news is, that someday, and we believe someday soon, Jesus Christ is coming back to this world to establish a kingdom of real truth, God's truth. And he will judge those who right now are promoting and practicing evil, even though they think it's good. It's amazing how the devil has twisted people's minds into thinking that evil is good and good is evil. I'd like you to turn to uh, Psalm 37, which I would encourage you to revisit periodically. I won't read you all of it. It's long, but I'll read you a few verses that gets into what we're talking about and what our reaction should be. Psalm 37, verse 1, Do not fret because of evildoers. I find myself fretting a lot less than I used to. I'm just giving it to God now, but I used to fret pretty much. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Do His will. Do His word. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. Verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait in the Lord shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek believers shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Well, that day's coming, and we're looking forward to the Lord's return, a time when there will be true peace on the earth. Imagine a time when all wars will cease. The Bible says people will take their spears and their swords and beat them into plowshares and pruning hooks, and they will study and practice war no more. A time when every person will be able to sit under their own fig tree and not be afraid that somebody's going to come and attack and take away what belongs to them. You'll be able to walk the streets at night without fear. You'll be able to leave the doors of your houses unlocked at night because nobody's going to come in to hassle you. Jesus Christ will be on the throne, and he will be a protector of all of his people. But for right now, this is what we're living with. This is what we have to deal with, this world around us. And here's what God says in his word, how he commands us as his people, how we are, what we are to do with those who set themselves against us as enemies. I'll read you out of Romans chapter 12. I'll read uh, it out of the NLT, starting with verse 19. Paul said, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead of your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. In other words, you'll hopefully bring them to repentance, and they will stop being enemies and become family in Christ. Verse 21, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Paul's words are very timely to us today, of course, because, again, there is this spirit of revenge that has settled upon our nation, and the church is not immune. A lot of Christians I know are wrestling with um, a desire to get even or get revenge on people that have wronged them. It's very difficult when somebody has hurt you or is trying to hurt you and you've done nothing to hurt them or nothing wrong to them. The desire to retaliate is rooted in our fallen nature, which is all about self. Therefore, it's very powerful, very powerful. 
In fact, it's so powerful that Solomon said in the book of Proverbs that he who controls his anger, in other words, that would include the desire for revenge, is a stronger man or woman than he who conquers a city. Paul recognized, or Solomon, I should say, recognized that the strongest enemies we face in life are not those without, it's the one within. Our fallen nature is the strongest enemy we face. And of course, the devil is right there poking it and pushing the buttons to get it rubbed up and, and to get it to dominate. But really, as Solomon said, it's a stronger person that controls their temper than the one who can conquer a city. One pastor had this to say, because revenge is the result of an unforgiving spirit. He said this, and I quote, the world's worst prison is the prison of an, of an unforgiving heart. If we refuse to forgive others, then we are only imprisoning ourselves and causing our own torment. Some of the most miserable people I have met in my ministry have been people who would not forgive others. They lived only to imagine ways to punish these people to seek revenge, to punish those who had wronged them, but they were really only punishing themselves. End quote. Look, I'll give you three quick scriptures on the subject. Just write them down, but I won't have you turn to them. Proverbs 24, verse 29 says, And don't say, don't say, Now I can pay them back for what they've done to me. Now I can get even with them. Don't say that. Okay? That should not be in our heart. That should not be a mindset. Ephesians 4, 32, Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3, 13, Make allowance for each other's faults. I mean, we all have faults. All right? Uh, Paul is saying, look, make allowance. In other words, recognize nobody's perfect, especially us, all right? We want to find fault with people who are not perfect, who say something maybe that we didn't like or did something to, to hurt us in some way. Maybe they didn't mean to. Paul is saying, look, you don't need to make allowance for people's faults. We all have them. Nobody's perfect, right? And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. It's mandatory. You know, a, a classic example of how, of how one godly man, and I believe he was a very godly uh, man, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, but uh, a classic example of how one man handled cruelty and injustice in his own life is the story of Joseph. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 37 and then chapter 38 to the end of the book. Let me just paraphrase quickly. You, you know, I'm just going to condense the story. You can read it on your own. But Joseph was the second youngest son of Jacob. And when he got into his teens, he showed himself to be a remarkable young guy. Not only was he upright, he was brilliant. And God had given him a gift for managing things, overseeing things. So much so that Jacob at one point made him the overseer over the family ranching business, which meant he put him over his older brothers, which wasn't the smartest thing to do. See, and, and they despised Joseph for being put above them, for being dad's favorite. And so it got so bad that they conspired against him to do him harm. And one day as he's walking toward them in the field, they see him and they said, look, here's our chance. They grab him. They were going to throw, throw him in a pit to leave him die. But then they saw some Midianite uh, traders going toward Egypt. And they said, let's pull him out, sell him into slavery and make some money off of this. So they did that. And all the while he's screaming, pleading with them not to do this. And as they're taking him away, and the, you know. So the Midianite traders uh, wound up selling him to a man named Potiphar, who was a captain in Pharaoh's army. And Joseph, 
he embraced the situation. He was a very godly man and saw that God must have had a plan in this. So he embraces the situation and just starts serving this guy. Now, he's born a free man. Now he's a slave through injustice. But he embraces it, and he works for Potiphar with all his house. Potiphar, being a big shot in Pharaoh's army, was gone a lot on the affairs of state for the king. And so after a while, everything Joseph touched prospered. Potiphar was smart enough to realize this kid, everything he touches is blessed. I'm going to make him overseer over my whole house. The problem was Potiphar had a wife, and she really took a liking to Joseph. The Bible says he was a very good-looking young guy. And because Potiphar was gone so much, she was probably lonely. And so she started to approach Joseph to have an affair with her. But being a godly young man, he, he rebuffed her uh, advances. Until one day they were in the house alone, and she said, this is it. I mean, she grabs him by the coat and says, you're going to sleep with me today, and that's all there is to it. And he wiggles out of his coat and runs for his life. Well, as the old saying goes, hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. And so she tells her husband, Joseph tried to rape her when he, Potiphar got home. I personally don't think Potiphar believed her. Okay, what was he going to do? Because if he had believed her, he would have had the guy killed right then. But he has to make it look like he has to side with his wife uh, over this. And so he has Joseph thrown into the Egyptian dungeon. I'm sure it was not a very pleasant place. But again, and I'm amazed by Joseph's relationship with God. He embraces the situation, begins to work for the jailer with all his heart. Everything he touches prospers. The jailer says, yeah, I'm going to put you over all the prisoners. Okay? Well, being now this is like 12 years has passed from the time he's been sold into slavery. 12 years has passed. And while he's in prison there overseeing the, the other prisoners, uh, Pharaoh has a falling out with his butler and baker and throws him into prison. And each of these guys has a dream. And so they're troubled by the dreams. And uh, Joseph says, well, tell me the dream. Maybe I can help you out with the interpretation. And so each tells Joseph his dream. And uh, Joseph interprets for the first guy uh, I think it was the um, I think it was the butler. I could be wrong. He says, "Oh, that's good. Well, that dream means in three days, Pharaoh's going to restore you back to your position as his butler." The other guy said, "Well, that sounds good. I'll, I had a dream too. Let me tell you my dream." Joseph says, "Oh, not so good. In three days, Pharaoh's going to have your head severed from your neck." But listen, you when you go back to Pharaoh, will you remember me? Put a good word in for you. I don't belong here. I've been railroaded, you know. So three days later, exactly like Joseph said. So the butler goes back to the, but he, God gives him a case of divine amnesia. Forgets everything about Joseph, right? A year or two later, Pharaoh has a couple of dreams that really have him troubled. Nobody can interpret these dreams, and the butler finally wakes up and says, oh, wait a minute, now I remember my fault. There was a guy in prison when Pharaoh was upset with me. You threw me in prison. There was a guy, I had a dream. There was a guy there, man, a Hebrew slave. He interpreted these dreams for us, uh, me and the baker. And Pharaoh says, well, let's call him in. So they clean Joseph up, put a change of clothes on him. And Pharaoh tells him his dreams. Joseph says, look, the two dreams are actually one. And here's the interpretation. There's going to be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt, followed by seven years of severe famine. Here's what I, I suggest you do. In the years of plenty, build storehouses to, to uh, store all the excess grain to Guard against all the years of famine when they come. Well, Pharaoh was so taken with Joseph, he makes him prime minister, okay, of over all of Egypt. So here comes the years of plenty, and Joseph has these storehouses built, and man, they're storing this grain like crazy, and then all of a sudden, here comes the seven years of famine. They start. The famine affected Canaan, 
where Jacob and his sons were living. Jacob thought Joseph was dead. That's what the, his other sons said it happened. He didn't know Joseph was still alive. So he hears there's grain in Egypt, sends his boys down to Egypt to buy grain. And through a series of events, uh, after a couple of trips down there, and I'll let you read the story, uh, Joseph reveals himself to He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. He's older now. Okay, he's in his 30s. Uh, he's got a full beard. He's wearing the robes of state. He's talking Egyptian. I mean, <laughs> the last person they expected to see on the throne was Joseph. But he reveals himself to his brothers, and they're devastated. They think, oh, my goodness, it's Joseph. He's going to wipe us. No, I'm not going to wipe you out. Go back and get that. Five more years of famine. Bring the family up here. I'm going to have you live in the land of Goshen. Beautiful place, especially because we're all shepherds and things and ranchers. Great grazing land. And so that's what happens. Boys go down, bring Jacob. Jacob is, is just almost had a heart attack that Joseph was still alive. Comes down to Egypt. And for the next five years, Joseph takes care of them until the famine's over. Well, they all stayed in Goshen. And at one point, Jacob dies. At this point, Joseph's brothers believe that now Joseph's going to get even. And all these years, he's been waiting until dad dies. And now that dad is gone, he's going to kill us. So they're terrified. And we pick the story up in Genesis 15, if you wouldn't mind turning there. Excuse me, Genesis 50, I should say, around verse 15. I want you to notice how Joseph handled his big brothers. Genesis 50, verse 15, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. These guys have still got a guilty conscience many years after the fact, right? Verse 16, So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please, forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of your servants of God, uh, the God of your father. So the, the, his brothers are saying, look, you know, dad wanted us to tell you. <laughs> I don't think dad said anything. But, but listen, dad, before he died, wanted us to tell you that he wanted us you know, to please be kind to us for what we did to you. Now, please, Joseph, okay, cut us a break, okay? And Joseph doesn't rail against these guys. He doesn't start shouting at them. In fact, um, he falls down on his face. Uh, they fall down on, on their faces and, um, and beg for mercy. And Joseph, verse 19, said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? That's a very important statement, guys. What Joseph is saying is, Vengeance belongs to God. I will not take vengeance upon you. Vengeance belongs to God. That's something that Paul said in Romans 12. Look, we are not to retaliate. We are not to get even. And today people don't want to get even. They want to get more than even. We are to commit it to God and leave it with him. He said, what am I in the place of God judges, not, not me? Am I in the place of God? But as for you, verse 20, you did mean evil against me. That's true. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Guys, God wanted me down here. He wanted me down here to use me to save a lot of lives during this famine. He said, I will provide for you and your little ones. I'm going to take care of you and your families. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I'm amazed by Joseph. I really am. He inspires me to want to be a better man. Because after all the years of injustice that Joseph had endured at the hands of his brothers, who sold him into slavery because of envy and hatred, he still maintained a tender heart towards them. You say, how is that possible? I'll tell you how it was possible. Let me tell you the secret of Joseph's mental and emotional health in spite of all the pain his brothers 
You think the guy should have been in intensive psychotherapy for years, okay? But he was completely emotionally healthy. How was that possible? You know how it was possible? Because he refused to focus on the actions of his brothers who had wronged him, but instead focused on God's sovereignty. You say, what do you mean, God's sovereignty? Well, when Joseph was a teenager, God gave him a couple of dreams. And basically, in those dreams, God told him that at one point, your entire family, brothers and parents, are going to bow down and worship you. In other words, God was going to elevate Joseph to some kind of a position where he would be reigning, in a sense, and his whole family would come to him and bow down to him. Now, where he made his mistake, he shared that with his big brothers, thinking for some strange reason they were going to be happy with that news. Hey, big brothers, God just showed me someday you're going to be bowing down to me. Really? They hated him more for his dreams. Okay, not the smartest. I must have run into family where, you know, Jacob did a dumb thing in putting Joseph over his brothers. Now Joseph, when he's younger, did a dumb thing in sharing what God revealed to him and so on. But listen to me. Joseph didn't know how this was going to happen, but he did receive it as a promise from God. He believed that these dreams were from God. They were God promising him he was going to make him a ruler someday or at least be in a place of authority over the whole world. And Joseph had no idea how that was going to work out, how God was going to fulfill that promise, but he clung to those promises. I mean, it was what he focused on during all the years he was in slavery, you know, first of all in Potiphar's house and then in the dungeon. All the years that he worked hard and tried to do the right thing and he kept getting knocked down more and more. Uh, Potiphar's wife lied about him, you know, and he's in the dungeon. And all these years where he was trying to do the right thing by God and his life kept getting slapped down lower and lower, what kept him going, what kept his mind from from just imploding and, and him just having a breakdown was he focused on God's sovereignty and believed strongly enough in the Lord that, look, God is in charge. Nothing happens to me or to any of us but what God doesn't allow. And if God allowed it, there's a reason for it. I'm going to embrace it and learn the lessons. And the lessons we know were eventually as God uh, allowed Joseph to be put in a place where he was uh, a manager over Potiphar's house and then a manager over the prison. Well, he would need no skills when God finally made him prime minister and manager over the entire grain distribution program of Egypt to save many lives. We see his faith in God's sovereignty in the face of his, all that his brothers had done to him. It comes through very clearly in verse 20 once again. He said, for, as for me, you intended evil against me. What you guys did was wrong. I'm not, I'm not excusing you or dismissing you. What you did was wrong. You intended evil to me. But my God's bigger. And God allowed it for good to get me down here to be used by him to save many lives during the famine. Now, don't misunderstand, even though Joseph forgave his brothers, that didn't mean that God had forgiven them. They had to repent and ask for forgiveness from God, and I'm convinced they did that. But it just demonstrates that Joseph wasn't holding a grudge against them. He wasn't holding on to revenge that he was going to satisfy at one point. He just saw the hand of God in it. And guys, if we could approach our lives like this, well, how much better off would all of us be and how much more peace would we have? Now, you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute. I'm not Joseph. God hasn't promised me I'm going to reign some... Oh, really? God hasn't promised you that you're going to reign someday? You better read the New Testament again. As the bride of Christ, you're going to sit on Jesus' throne and you are going to rule with him. 
and people, Jesus said, will come and bow down to you. And right now you are being trained by God through adversity, through evil against you, and all kinds of, you are being trained to be like your bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, who learned humility and obedience, Philippians 2, by the things which he, what? Suffered. Embrace it. I'm not saying you have to like it. I'm not saying you have to jump up and down and say hip, hip, hooray when somebody, you know, lies about you or persecutes you. You pray for them. You give it to God. You don't focus on them or on the wrong. You simply give it to God and say, Lord, you're in charge. You must have a purpose in it. I'm not going to focus on the transgression. I'm going to focus on your sovereignty. And I'm going to embrace the situation and learn how to be more like Jesus through it by your grace. One last word on Joab and we'll close. Guys, he was a man who lived by the sword and he was also a man who died by the sword. You can read about that in Second King, 1 Kings 2, I should say. Guys, there is an immutable law of God, and that is what you sow, you what? You reap. What you sow, you reap. Look, if you sow hatred and revenge in your life, you're going to reap negative consequences. Hatred and revenge might make you feel good for the moment when you take revenge on somebody, but they won't heal you inside. Only forgiveness can heal the hurt inside that others have done to you. And when people say to you, yes, but they don't deserve my forgiveness, let me just say to you this. Forgiveness is not earned. It's granted. It is a gift that you bestow on somebody who has wronged you, even if they don't deserve it, as Jesus forgave us, and none of us deserved it as well. As he hung on that cross, he forgave those that put him there unjustly, and they didn't deserve to be forgiven. Forgiveness is not something people earn that you give to them because they've earned it. It's something that you bestow out of, out of a, a heart of forgiveness. And when you do, the byproduct is it has a way of releasing all the anger and bitterness in your heart that if you don't forgive will fester and grow and will poison you from the inside out. It's called a root of bitterness. If you don't uproot it through forgiveness... It will poison you and destroy you from within. One author said, and I quote, Banish all malignant and vengeful thoughts. A spirit of revenge is the very spirit of the devil. Vengeful thoughts make a man more, listen, like Satan. And nothing can be more opposite to the character of Christianity uh, that Christianity was designed to promote. What character is that? Character of Christ. He is our example. I'll have you turn to one last scripture. 1 Peter 2, and we'll close. Because, guys, the very antithesis of the revenge of Joab is the forgiveness of Christ and the love of Christ. I'll read it to you the NLT, 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his footsteps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges righteously. And guys, that is the key right there. And I'll warn you, though, that is a supernatural admonition. Nobody in this room, without the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit within, can do this. It goes against everything our fallen nature 
stands for. Getting even. How dare they do that to me? They're not going to get away with this. I don't want to get even. I want to get more than me. I want to destroy. That's the fallen nature in operation. Any unbeliever can bring revenge against their enemies. It takes a spirit-filled child of God to say, Lord, I, my flesh wants to get this person. I give them to you, Lord. Give me a heart to love them and pray for them. And teach me the lessons you're trying to teach me through it. But I want to be like Jesus. That, that's who I want to be like. And may God give us the grace to do that. So we've seen the rebellion of Sheba, the revenge of Joab. And next time, the week after Easter, we'll look at the third one, which I think might be the most interesting of all of them, the reason of a wise woman. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. And we thank you, Lord, for giving us your word that we might walk in the light of your truth. And Lord, what we've learned today... Um, is great, but we need your supernatural grace and power to live it out in our lives. Because, Lord, again, an evil spirit of revenge is descended upon our nation, and even Christians feel it and are subjected to it. But, Lord, we want to be like Jesus. Give us grace to be like our Savior, to forgive those who have wronged us, to love them with your love, and to pray for them that they might be saved. We just thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. You've forgiven us for so much. How dare we hold on to grudges against another? Give us grace to let go, because only when we let go of the pain and the and all and the hurt and extend forgiveness will we begin to heal inside. So thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.